Hello and welcome to As We Wait, an in-depth, verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible with pastor and teacher Mike Scanlon of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California. This is the second of a three-part study of the Old Testament book of Joshua, chapters 23 and 24. You have a few moments, so why don't you go get your Bibles and follow along. Please turn to Joshua chapter 23, beginning at verse 14. Then in verse 14, it says, And behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth. For you know that in all your hearts and all your souls, that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spake concerning you. All are come to pass unto you, and not one thing has failed thereof. You know, Joshua's saying, you know, Behold, I am going the way of all the earth. It's a kind of an eloquent way of saying, I'm about to die. And you think about that, I'm going the way of all the earth. I can't help but think about the second law of thermodynamics. Everything goes from order to disorder. Everything goes from being in a state of completeness or whatever and breaking down or falling apart. And that's the way of all the earth. Everything is getting older. Everything is eroding. Everything is falling apart. Even us, most of us, at least I am. And that's the cycle of life. And so Joshua's basically saying, hey, I'm going the way of all the earth. It's all going to fall apart. But then his, I won't say his dying words, but some of his last words he makes this declaration, this affirmation, that not one thing of all that God has said has failed to happen. I like that, that he affirms God's word. If you were to take his life experience and everything from being, remember now Joshua was born a slave in Egypt. He knew the hardship and the rigor and the hard times of being there. And then he saw all the things that God did to deliver them and all the things that have happened since then. And you could boil his life statement down to one thing. God's word is true. And I think we can say the same thing as we look and reflect upon our lives. What part of God's word has not come true for us? Can anyone point out that God's word isn't true? And we can't do that. The prophet Isaiah affirms the same thing. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, Isaiah declares that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Jesus affirms the same thing. He says, not one jot, not one tittle will fail to happen of what God has said that God's word is true. That is something we can hang our hat on. Then in verse 15, it says, Therefore it shall come to pass, that as all good things shall come upon you, which the Lord your God promised you, so shall the Lord bring upon you all evil things until he have destroyed you from off this good land, which the Lord your God hath given you. When you have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and have gone and served other gods, and bowed yourselves to them, then shall the anger of the Lord be kindled against you, 
and you shall perish quickly from off the good land which he has given unto you. Just as surely as the good things have happened because of obedience, you can say that just as surely the bad things will happen because of disobedience, that God will keep his word no matter how it swings, no matter how it cuts. God's past faithfulness is an assurance of his future faithfulness. God has a track record. God has declared all these things that they would happen, that here's how it's going to be, and as you see all these things fulfilled, and the truth of it, and as you believe that in your heart, then you look forward to the things that God has said that are still to happen, the prophecies that are still going to happen, the second coming of Jesus. I mean, that's why we have a hope even to hang around this place, is we know that Jesus is going to come get us. And I believe that because of all the other things that have come true in God's word. The saddest word, though, in this chapter is in verse 16. The first word in that verse, the word when. When you have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God. Not if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God. I don't like that. I remember when Moses was giving his final sermon, if you will, to the people, he said basically the same thing. When you transgress, that's like, oh, man. It's almost like a certainty that this is going to happen because whether God's given them specific revelation or just they see the writing on the wall, they can see what the people are doing, they kind of go, man, that's not going to turn out good. But it's the understanding that they're going to stumble. And as we get into the book of Judges, that's one of the hardest things to see is that they do great for a while, then they stumble. And then they repent, and then they do great for a while, and then they stumble. And the hardest part of that isn't just the drama of the situation. (laughs) The hard part is that I see my own life in front of me. That I stumble, the Lord takes care of me, I you know, ask for forgiveness, he restores me, I get running again, then boom, back on my face. And it's the same thing that we're going to see in the nation of Israel. And it just gives you a greater and deeper appreciation for God's patience, for God's supernatural love for each one of us, because he doesn't get tired of picking us up. I'm glad for that. In this chapter, there's been three main exhortations or admonitions, if you will, and I want to just kind of point them out to you. In verse 6, Joshua says, keep God's word. And that's good counsel no matter how you look at it. Just keep God's word. Then the next thing is in verse 8, he says, cleave to the Lord. Stick with God. Abide in him, as Jesus would say. And then finally in verse 11, love the Lord. And as it said in in other places in Joshua and Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, with everything that's in you. Be totally, wholly committed to Jesus. If you do any of these things, and all of these things, you're never going to fail. We'll live a life that's pleasing to God. And so that's what Joshua's trying to do with the people. He's trying to point them in a way that their lives will be pleasing to God. Well, that takes us now to chapter 24, verse 1. And Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel and for their heads and for their judges and for their officers, and they presented themselves before God. And so After addressing the leadership of the nation, Joshua now addresses the people directly. And Joshua calls the people to Shechem instead of Shiloh, which is kind of interesting. Remember, Shiloh is where the tabernacle is set up. Shiloh is where people go to offer their sacrifices. It's where they go to worship God. It's the civic, civil, if you will, and the religious center of the country. Everybody goes there to do anything. In fact, it's the geographical center of the country as well. Now, Shechem is not too far from there, but it's still not Shiloh. Why go to Shechem instead of Shiloh? And we find the answer in Genesis chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. Here we have the account of Abram as he's coming into the promised land, coming to the land of Canaan. And it says, And Abram passed through the land unto the place of Shechem, unto the plain of Moreh. And the Canaanite was in the land, and the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, 
Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared to him. So for the first time, God appears to Abraham. And not the first time he appeared to him, but that God speaks to Abraham and makes this promise that I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give you all this land to your descendants. And as a result, Abram builds an altar, which is a form of worship, and he begins to worship God. And so it's the place of promise. It was also at Shechem later on, as Jacob was fleeing from his uncle Laban as he was coming through, that he stopped and he challenged his family. He says, you know what? Get rid of all the idols in your midst. Get rid of all the stuff. Remember, Uncle Laban had already confronted me. You stole my gods and didn't find them. But Jacob somehow knew that somebody there had some of those things. And so Jacob stops the trip, if you will. He's on his way to Bethel, the house of God. And he says, okay, I know you guys have some stuff, so get rid of it. And they took all the idols and they buried them under a tree there in Mamre. Then later on, we read about this in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses is instructed by God that when you go into the promised land, I want you to go to Shechem. I want you to go take half the tribes and put them up on top of Mount Gerizim. And the other half of the tribes put them up on top of Mount Ebal. These two mountains, the valley in between, the town in the middle of that is Shechem. And the, the priests, the Levites, and everybody, they would build an altar at the bottom. And they would begin to declare God's words, the blessings and the cursings. And then from the mountaintops, the people would yell out, Amen, so be it, Lord. And they would basically affirm God's word in that place. It was kind of like renewing that covenant that God's word is true, that God is an awesome God. And so you have these three things that you know Shechem is significant because God first promised the land to Abram there, that the children of Israel through Jacob swore that they would pretty much give up their idols, and they affirmed God's word. So now Joshua calls him back to that place instead of Shiloh, and it's symbolic. It's like, hold it, remember the history here. <laughs> God promised you the land. Where are you? You're in the land. It's been given to you. God said, get rid of the idols. Well, guess what? That's what the rest of this chapter is about. It's about getting rid of the idols. And God's word is true, and that's what the rest of the chapter is about as well. So Shechem is a very significant place. As we cruise through the rest, verses 2 through 13, basically Joshua begins to recite their history, starting with Abraham's father, Terah, reminding them of where they came from and so forth, reminding them of God's faithfulness, and demonstrating that God is worthy of their love and faithfulness in return. And Joshua is simply God's spokesperson at this point. Verse 2 kind of starts out, you know, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. And so Joshua is not speaking for himself, he's speaking for God. In verses 2 and 3, And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood, meaning the Euphrates, in old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. And I took your father Abraham from the other side of the flood, and led him throughout all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his seed, and gave him Isaac. Joshua points out that Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, worshipped and served pagan gods. Now, what he's pointing out is that, that they shouldn't think too highly of themselves, that they started out as pagan idol worshipers too, <laughs> that they don't come from, quote-unquote, pure stock, that they've got a history. They were saved from something. They were descendants, basically, of idol worshipers. Then, on the other hand, he's telling them to be careful not to fall back into that lifestyle of idolatry and idol worship. It's a warning to them. Joshua is pointing out that God graciously intervened and delivered Abraham out of that lifestyle. God delivered Abram out of a lifestyle that he could not otherwise have gotten himself out of. I mean, think about this. He's growing up in that culture, and unless God had reached into his life and said, Abram, come out of this and follow me, Abram would have stayed there. 
wouldn't he? And he would have become just like everybody else around him. And so God, in his sovereignty, reaches out and he speaks to Abram, and then Abram is obedient. And note that it was God that came to Abram. It wasn't Abram that came to God. Again, we see God initiating, God choosing out this man. In John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus basically tells his disciples the same thing. In John 15, 16, Jesus says, You've not chosen me, but I've chosen you. And, you know, we can get into these discussions, and I know for a fact that they will never end. You know, the sovereignty of God, the free will of man, predestined or not predestined, all that kind of stuff. It's like seagulls fighting over a French fry. It just never ends till the French fry's gone. We're never going to solve that. But there's just that element of God reaching into the life of a man and, and touching a person's heart and bringing him to that place. I know that because it's true for me. I was just cruising along in life, fat, dumb, and happy, and all of a sudden God made me realize who he is. <laughs> it's like, whoa. And I realized I was going to hell, and it scared me. And it brought me to a place of repentance, and it brought me to a place eventually of seeking his face. And that's how it is for all of us. We get to verse 4. And they gave unto Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. And they gave unto Esau Mount Seir to possess it. But Jacob and his children went down into Egypt. So Isaac receives Jacob and Esau as a gift from God. Children are a gift from God. Esau was a man of the flesh. He was ruled by the flesh. And so he got a fleshly inheritance. He got a mountain, Mount Seir. That's what he got. And by the way, that's about all he got. (laughs) But Jacob, Jacob was different. Jacob had a capacity for the things of God. Eventually, even though he has his trials and the things he goes through, Jacob becomes Israel, which means governed by God. What did Jacob get? Well, he didn't get Mount Seir. What he got was a bunch of trials. He got a bunch of difficulty. He got a famine that basically drove him and his family to go to Egypt. Then in Egypt, what did he get? Well, he got hardship and slavery and all kinds of stuff. But it's interesting. Even in that, God blessed him. Because they went into Egypt, 70 souls, and they came out a nation. They came out close to 2 or 3 million people, depending on how you look at it. And so God even used those things in Jacob's life. But then in verse 5, it says, I sent Moses and Aaron, and they plagued Egypt according to all which I did among them. And afterward, I brought you out. And I brought out your fathers out of Egypt. And you came unto the sea, and the Egyptians pursued after your fathers with the chariots and horsemen unto the Red Sea. And when they cried unto the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and brought the sea upon them and covered them. And your eyes have seen what I've done in Egypt. And you dwelt in the wilderness a long season. So God sent Moses and Aaron to lead them out of Egypt. God defeated the Egyptians. He basically buried them at sea. God has shown himself strong. Then in verse 8, same thing. I brought you into the land of the Amorites, which were on the side of Jordan. And they fought with you, and I gave them into your hand that you might possess their land. And I destroyed them from before you. So again, the same track record. Verse 9. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and warred against Israel, and sent and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not hearken unto Balaam. Therefore he blessed you still. So I delivered you out of his hand. So God has delivered them out of every battle. Now, as I was reading this account, it says that, talking about Balak, arose and warred against Israel. Well, if you go back into Numbers 22 and read that account, you read about how Balak tried to hire Balaam, the soothsayer, to curse Israel. And Balaam basically says, hey, I can't curse them. God wants to bless them. That's all there is to it. And so they go back and forth and everything else. But do you ever read about Balak sending his chariots and his army down to attack or confront Israel in a physical war? You don't. 
because he realized he was going to get beat anyway. So he's up on the hilltop watching him. It says here that he warred against him. What kind of war? <laughs> the same kind of war that we're all involved in every day. It was a spiritual battle. It was spiritual warfare. And God gave them the victory over that as well. They had all the physical victories. They conquered Jericho and Ai and, and all these other places. But also the spiritual battles, God gives us victory in the spiritual battles. And isn't that what we face the most? Most of us aren't in fear for our life every day and wondering if we're going to make it through the day and that kind of thing. But the mental battles that go on every day, because the battlefield for Christianity is the mind. Is anybody besides me ever struggled to have to go to church or to get to go to church? Or you thought, man, I can hardly wait to go to church. And the car breaks down, and the kids throw up or something happens and everything seems like it's geared against you. And we all live that. We all deal with all kinds of struggles like that, that you want to do good, but life gets in the way. And God will give us victory over those things as well, because that's the battlefield in Christianity. It's all spiritual. That's why Paul wrote that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God. They're spiritual to the pulling down of strongholds. And so understanding that God gives us the victory there as well. Then in verse 11, it says, You went over Jordan and came unto Jericho, and the men of Jericho fought against you, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I delivered them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you, even the two kings of the Amorites, but not with thy sword nor with thy bow. And I have given you a land for which you did not labor, and cities which you have not built. And you dwell in them of the vineyards and olive yards which you have planted not, do you eat. So across the Jordan, you know, all the battles God fought for them, starting with Jericho and Ai and Amorites and all the different ites and stuff. And I like this, that God sent hornets. You ever have a picnic somewhere and all the meat bees come out? Like, ah, yeah, whatever. But imagine, you know, you're a big, tough, strong soldier and you got your sword and you're ready for battle and God sends a little bee after you. Puts it in their little bee brain to go get you. Your sword doesn't do you much good, especially if it gets in your helmet or flies up your nose or, or does something crazy. Hornets can be nasty. I remember when I was a kid, I went camping with my dad and I didn't know about these things, but we're out there in the woods and and I see a, a yellow jacket, learn that later on, that flies out of this hole in the ground. And I'd never seen that. I was seven years old, thinking, wow, that's kind of cool. And so, you know, what does a young boy do when he sees that? Well, naturally, I kicked the mound over and see what was in there. Well, I found out what was in there. They all came out. And uh, the first sting, I was like, oh, that hurt. The second sting, oh, that, that's when I figured out. By the third sting, it's like, run! So I took off, and I got stung 17 times that morning. I learned a valuable lesson. But it's interesting that God can control those little hornet brains and tell them what to do, and they would do it, just as much as God could tell the Red Sea to part, and it did it. One of the things that, for me, as I've gotten a little older, I'm less and less tolerant or patient with people that want to marginalize God, that want to somehow explain away the miraculousness of God. You know, when God said he parted the Red Sea and then eventually he he brings it down upon the Egyptians, that's what he did. You know, God has an enormous, gigantic vocabulary that we can't even comprehend. And if he decided to use, as an example, hornets, if he meant something else, he would have said something else. But he said hornets. And so I'd hate to be those soldiers because, you know, you're all ready for battle and here come the bees. It's like, oh, there's no defense against that. And so God uses nature to accomplish his will. But notice as well that they've been given land and cities and vineyards and orchards, none of which they've worked for or had to build. God has given them a ready-made life by God's grace, ready-made blessings for everything they could ever want. 
God is blessing them abundantly more than they can ask or think, just like Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Our God is a blessing God. Then in verse 14, it says, Now therefore fear the Lord, and serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood, and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. Because of all these things, fear God, serve him, love him. It's only reasonable to do so. Serve him in sincerity from the heart. Serve him in truth. That admonition still stands. Jesus tells us the exact same thing in John chapter 4, verse 24, when Jesus declares that God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God doesn't want our outside superficial worship. God doesn't want the appearance of piety or spirituality. God wants our hearts to be reconciled to his. God wants to have communion and fellowship with him. We all look at each other and we know who we are and familiarity kind of thing. But you know, if we all live together, wouldn't that be something? Get the whole church together and we all just live together in this building for about a month. Nobody can go outside and there's only one bathroom. We will get to know each other. We will get to know our weaknesses and our strengths. We'll get to know who's a real Christian and who's not. You know what I mean? And as we draw close to God, sometimes too much of us is revealed even to us. But God wants us to worship him in truth because God knows who we are and he still loves us. But he wants us to get to that place where we recognize who he is more and more because we're so self-deceived. We think we've got something to offer. We think that we're cool. We think that we whatever. And God says, no, you're not worthy of any of that. I reached into your life because of my sovereignty, not because you're so cool, not because you had something to offer. And when we come to that understanding, that's when we truly love and appreciate our God for who he is and for his incredible love for us. Joshua lays out the first step here. He says, put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt. Okay, so if you're going to love the Lord truly, in truth, then the first step, and it's kind of confrontational, but he says first step is put away the gods which your father served. He knows that there's stuff going on behind the scenes. Just because he's not right there in their tent confronting them every night, somehow he knows, in a sense, what's going on. And it's still going on. When the Apostle John wrote his first epistle, you know the order of things. The Apostle John first wrote the book of Revelation. Then he wrote the Gospel of John. And then he wrote his final three epistles. And so John is nearing the end of his life when he writes First John. And the last words in the book of First John, the letter of First John, if you will, is in First John chapter 5, verse 21. And he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Why would John make that his closing statement in that book, in that letter to each of us? Because he knows that we're prone to idolatry. He knows that we're prone to worshiping. And what's an idol? Let's define that for a minute. Because some people think that an idol is like a little plastic Buddha that you put on your table and put oranges in front of it and burn incense to it. Yeah, that's an idol. Okay. And you can go to a lot of places and, and see all kinds of different idols, okay? religious idols. But an idol, I'm going to broaden the definition. An idol is anything that we worship or revere more than God himself. In other words, I love my wife, this example. I love my wife dearly, and God has called me to love my wife. But you know what? I used to say when I was younger, man, I love my wife. I idolize her. And I've learned not to say that because I don't. I've learned to love the Lord my God more than my wife. Well, that's all the time we have for now. 
You've just been listening to pastor and teacher Mike Scanlon of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California, teaching the second of a three-part in-depth study of the Old Testament book of Joshua, chapters 23 and 24. Romans 10:17 says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So make it a point to please join us again next time as we continue our study through the book of Joshua and the entire Bible. In fact, why don't you take the time to read ahead? As We Wait is an outreach ministry of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California. We pray that you were blessed, and we want to invite you to join us in person. Calvary Chapel meets at 450 Richmond Road, right across from the Railroad Depot and next to Mama's. On Sunday mornings, we meet at 8.30 and 10.30. Our Wednesday evening service is at 7 p.m. And communion is celebrated the first Sunday of each month at 6 p.m. If you can't make it in person, all services are streamed live on the web at www.ccsusanville.com. To get the entire study on CD, please call the church office at 530-257-4833. If you've made a profession of faith and would like more information on what it is to grow in your faith, we'd love to hear from you. Won't you take a few minutes to write to us? You can mail your cards and letters to P.O. Box 1316, Susanville, California, 96130. Until next time, may God richly bless you. Lord,